Hello, welcome to Watering Seeds, a podcast conversation that reviews and reapplies the preached word to our own minds and hearts and to those of our listeners. Watering Seeds is the podcast ministry of Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Today, we will be discussing our recent sermon on Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. The title of the sermon, Things Fall Apart. That sermon was recorded. You can find it on our website, www.covenantreform.net. Under the Sermons tab, you can watch it on our YouTube channel if you missed it in person. My name's Sean McCann. I preached the sermon. I'm here with my fellow pastor, Chris Brown, who listened to the sermon, and we're here to talk about it. Welcome on board, Chris. How's it going? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. All right. I'm liking this new mic. I feel powerful. (laughs) (laughs) You all can't see it, but we... I got a new mic, and now I just wanted all of our hearers to know we're trying. <laughs> we are really trying to up our audio quality. And so, Yeah, that's, gonna, that's great. Right at the beginning of COVID, I bought a special mic thinking we might do a couple of things with it. And we ended up using it for dozens of home devotions and sermons. We used it for the live stream for months. We've used it how many podcast episodes I now? I don't know. Two, yeah. two seasons yeah. now. So. It ends up being costing the church about a quarter per recording, it seems like, out of all the recordings we've done. Uh, but yeah, so hopefully uh, our sound quality is good, and I'm sure you can let us know from home if it's not. Or or don't. Or don't. <laughs> We're okay hearing some criticism. We're okay not hearing criticism sometimes. We do love to hear questions, and mm-hmm. I think one of the questions we got from this sermon uh, may be helpful for us to discuss sort of the what's the right word for it? What sin occurred in the garden? Was it a simple sin or a complex sin? Was it building on itself or did it simply instantly happen by eating the fruit? Mm. Um, Maybe we'll get to that in a little bit, but we got that question on Sunday, which was great. Uh, We love to sort of wrestle with those. So uh, as always, if you listen to the sermon and have questions, we usually record Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, the week following the sermon. We'd love Uh, to hear from you and try to answer those questions. Before we get to that question, an overview of the sermon, a very well-known text, Genesis 3, 1-7, the story of the fall, a story that interestingly, all of chapter 2, most of chapter 2 is God and Adam. Chapter 3 is now Satan or the serpent and the woman. So it's a bit different uh, as we come uh, to the characters uh, or the protagonists, we should say, of chapter 3. Uh, The mental image I used for the sermon was the idea of fishing and a fisherman using a lure to tempt or to draw a fish to eat of something that looks like it's going to bring life, uh, but in fact will hook them and uh, bring death. Satan, via the serpent, is luring Eve to rebel in order that she might lose mankind's place with God. How does he do that? I outlined very three simple steps. He twists, he tempts, and he triumphs. So I'm going to look at each of those in turn. Uh, before we do, Chris, any kind of overarching thoughts on the big picture, main idea, a kind of looking 10,000-foot view at the outline, anything like that before we jump in? Um, I guess it's sort of more like the question that a lot of people ask is when... When did uh, when did Satan fall? And I guess we could ask that now before we get into any of the 
any of the other stuff. Do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's 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 a good question. It's not a question I think is that is answered clearly in Scripture, but I think we need to acknowledge that if there is an evil presence in the garden, there's some sort of sin that's already existed in the sense it's not humankind uh, but we sort of piece together from scripture it's in the angelic realm i said during the first sermon that some people assume it happens between genesis 1 1 and 1 2 i don't particularly think there's evidence for that uh, but obviously there's part of the story that we don't know uh, ahead of chapter 3 which also involves questions of how in the world did the serpent did satan get in the serpent in the garden which there's lots of thoughts on that and it's one of those things that as with much of genesis we i think can do some helpful thinking on and speculation but it's hard to arrive at any firm conclusions your thoughts on that yeah i mean yeah i think one of the older views is there was some rebellion earlier and i guess they derive that from some i guess i, I consider it kind of an esoteric uh, okay, that's a that's a ten thousand dollar kind of, word. What does it's that mean? Kind of like a here's one verse in Isaiah that says something, and we're gonna extrapolate from it, and we're gonna derive a very specific interpretation about Satan, and it, I don't think it actually has anything to do with Satan. Uh, so, at least from my survey of Scripture, I what I've seen is I think Genesis three is the rebellion. I think. I think it is the the angelic apostasy, like right here. Hmm. Um, there's at least there's no other biblical description of a rebellion aside from this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there could have been something else, but this is what we're given. Right. So yeah, this is the rebellion that sort of matters. That's what we see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well. The idea of Satan coming by means of a serpent to twist, tempt, and triumph uh, is kind of laid out for us in the text. Uh, The twisting, I kind of lay out as verses 1 to 4, and we see uh, that Satan's a liar. He has a little lie by planting doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say? Did God actually say? Uh, He is uh, trying to entrap her, in a sense, uh, with questions by his cunning by his deception. Before we go into kind of each of those ways, I want to read a quote uh, that I found really helpful. Uh, This is a a paragraph from a large book called Reform Dogmatics by Herman Bovink. The title of the section is The Serpent's Lie. Hmm. And here's what he writes. Humanity had probably existed in the state of innocence for only a short while when it was tempted and toppled from without by a serpent that was more crafty than any other wild animal. The serpent addressed not the man, but the woman, who had not herself received the prohibitionary command directly from God, but through her husband, and was therefore more open to argumentation and doubt. The serpent, accordingly, first of all tried to create doubt in the heart of the woman about the commandment of God, and to that end presented it as if as having been given by God out of harshness and selfishness. The woman by the manner in which she reproduces and expands the command, clearly shows it had come to her mind as a sharp boundary and restriction. After raising the doubt and bringing home to the woman the inconvenience of the command, the serpent continues by sowing unbelief and pride in the woman's now well-prepared mind. The serpent now firmly denies 
that violating the command will result in death, indicating that God gave the command out of sheer selfishness. If humans will eat of the tree, they will, instead of dying, become like God and receive perfect, that is, divine knowledge. The serpent's assurance and the high expectation it raised prompted the woman to look at the tree, and the longer she looked, the more she became enchanted with its fruit. The desire of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life made the temptation irresistible. Finally, she took of the fruit, ate it, and gave some to her husband, and he ate. Man, that's a simple paragraph, uh, but it lays out, uh, I think, how I want to introduce us to this discussion about uh, Eve and Satan's lie. Uh, Bavink, in this paragraph, sort of presents to us a, a, a mounting assault of God's truth in Eve's mind, then in her heart that culminates in the eating of the fruit. And so for me, the way I taught the passage was that the first sin, maybe we could use this word, was complex. Mm. It built upon uh, seeds planted in the mind that grew through the desire of the heart and expressed itself in eating the fruit. I don't mean to say there were multiple different sins, because the Bible is clear in the New Testament that the, the sin is eating the forbidden fruit. But I think that is the culminating act of a chain, maybe we could say, of sin uh, that begins with the doubt sown by Satan. So the question we received wasn't the on Sunday was wasn't the first sin the eating of the fruit, and I think my answer to that is yes and no. <laughs> you you lean one way or the other on that. That was also my immediate answer when I, <laughs> when I was asked. I thought, well, yeah, the pastor non-answer, yeah, right? Oh well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I th- I thought that was basically the same. That as it's a. It is a complex, like a matrix of sin. That's how sure. I sort of described it. Was and you could you could try to parse it out and be like, well, you know, if they had sinned in this way, wanting the thing, but then they had chosen not to eat of the thing, would they have had original sin? Would they? Have, would that? Have, but it's sort of useless to ask that question because it's it's a complex. It's a ma- a matrix that it all goes together the fact that somebody who doesn't have to sin who doesn't have a sin nature gives in to sin they're gonna sin like that's anyway so yeah and really the culminating sin we might say is adam eating mm-hmm. right if we're that's gonna right. follow that chain all the way through it's really adam eating uh because that he is the one that is the covenant head yeah. that is held accountable i actually was thinking about that today i was reviewing the Chapter 3, actually, the curses. And I noticed when, when God gives the covenant curses, when he turns to Adam, he says, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That's how he puts it. You listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, sh- you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So he was, he, as a covenant head, he, he was responsible uh, for the entirety of the human race as the representative. And he listened to his wife. So, I mean, what would have happened if he hadn't? I don't know. <laughs> That's another predicament that you could theologians can debate about. But um, And let's be clear, this has nothing to do with husbands shouldn't listen right. to their wives. No, it's That's not, not the it's application not the at all. No. Because I think that with the play on words there is that 
there's one voice that Adam's supposed to listen to. It's God. It's God's it's voice. Father. Right. And mm-hmm. so he chooses to listen to the very voice that's the opposite of God's voice. And at the time, his wife should have been listening to God's voice as well and not the voice of a serpent. So anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about the voice of the serpent. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know what it sounded like. <laughs> How does a snake talk? Snakey. Uh, it's funny. I was preparing for the the passage you just referenced, mm-hmm. the curses. And some say the curse is that people just don't like snakes. That's the curse on the snake, which is true. People don't like uh, snakes. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't explain our dislike of spiders or clowns, though. I just, yeah, that's right. That's right. What is, it called? is this called the, the, is it the ideological interpretation where... They say, oh, this stuff is just trying to explain why people don't like snakes anymore. It's sort of like those old Rudyard Kipling stories, how the leopard got its spots. Right. Right. So people suppose, did the snake have legs? And now it has to walk on its belly. What kind of a, not just primitive, but what what kind of foolish people do you think wrote this thing? I mean, that, that is what I have to ask people who think that. Like, that's obviously not the point of this right. passage. Right. And yet, the of all of the animals in the animal kingdom... It seems appropriate to us that Satan chose a serpent, crafty, wily, mm. um, hard to sort of see how it works, how it moves. We think, as I said in the sermon, that Eve was probably taken aback that the sermon spoke, the serpent spoke to her and thought that was immediately put her on the defensive. Mm. So I said in, my, in the sermon that Eve's reply to the serpent in verses 2 and 3 is revealing. It's revealing in multiple ways that it does not follow the commands of verses 16 and 17. I named four ways, and I'm wondering if any of those kind of stood out to you. Uh, I named the Eve minimizes the privileges, she removes the personal, she exaggerates the prohibition, and she weakens the penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you personally, any of those kind of hit home to in your walk with God and your... Uh, kind of theological studies anything stand out yeah and i i thought it was great because i've i've only the ones i've seen people focus on or i've focused on are the depersonalization of the law <laughs> and exaggerating the prohibition do especially, not touch yeah especially that part where it says do not touch but but i hadn't really noticed minimizing the privileges or hmm. weakening the penalty and i think mm-hmm. I yeah, as someone said at our house really. afterwards, the word surely is pretty important. Yeah, <laughs> you will surely die. Yeah. Definitely. Sorry, I cut you off. No, and uh, I mean, I think they're all pretty important. Um, I think minimizing the privileges, the discontentment is pretty big. Um, hmm. It's it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. I think all of these are subtle, but uh, minimizing the privileges and discontentment in the Christian life is a... Uh, an easy thing. Um, so that's what yeah. stands out to me. Yeah. Yeah. As you think about, as, as I've been just thinking about Eve, and it, sometimes it's hard to say we're just like her because she's really experiencing sin for the first time. Mm-hmm. So this isn't really the fallen state yet. And yet I think it still does speak to kind of what goes on in our own hearts. And I think about kind of two ways in which we as creatures, as Christians, often err in thinking about God's word, especially God's law and requirements. Uh, There's kind of the one side, the legalist side, which 
it's sort of adding extra restrictions, mm-hmm. sort of. And, uh, it's also and depersonalizing. The so law. and depersonalizing, and it's making the law uh, the means of salvation, mm-hmm. obedience. The sort of opposite of that is antinomianism, which is against the law, uh, which is a uh, kind of a uh, doing away with the restrictions of God's word in the name of kind of freedom and freedom in Christ. And I think that's another way of depersonalizing the law, mm-hmm. right? It's seen as it's somewhat arbitrary. It somewhat comes from someone who doesn't care for me and love for me. There's a better path uh, for my happiness than law, and that is doing whatever I want. Uh, and I think we we can fall on either side of that, but really both sides misunderstand God and his law. And I think they can kind of be the opposites, but actually come full circle and be very similar in separating a loving God from his law. I think in minimizing uh, the the penalty, especially about surely dying, I think uh, both the antinomian and the legalist thinks uh, the law is not quite as serious, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the legalist, because it's not as serious because they can keep it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the antinomian, not quite as serious because they don't want to keep it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter for them. Uh, so it kind of stood out to me that we can, where whatever may be extreme we find ourselves on, we can look at Eve and we can see ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> in Eve and the way in which she was led to mangle God's word. Um, the the weakening of Eve's resistance, in a sense, is then met with the serpent's big lie, verse 4, in which he uh, directly counteracts uh, God's word. It's incredible boldness. And I think part of the craftiness of the serpent is he doesn't lead with that. Mm-hmm. His introduction to Eve is not a direct contradiction of God's word, but he sort of has her where he wants her uh, and is able to to pounce on her. So any any other thoughts on the twisting of God's word, how it might apply uh, to us today, anything like that? Yeah, I guess we could say, though this is the first sin and original sin and the source of the covenant curses and all of the woes in the world are from this, actually. We can still also say whenever we sin, we imitate this pattern, basically. So... It's the same issue of temptation and twisting. I guess twisting comes first. It's it's this issue of the character of God, right? I mean, he comes in and he, he tries to sow doubt in us about what God is like. So it's those things that you mentioned, um, sowing discontentment in the privileges we've been given and resenting the God who gives us a law to protect us and show us what's good and exaggerate adding rules to god's rules mm-hmm. and uh weakening the penalty that's that's all about god's character saying he's nearly not that great and and then he comes in and goes for the jugular and says since he's not that great he's just wrong about mm-hmm. about this mm-hmm. you can be right about this you you can make the judgment call so anyway that's yeah I, that was all i was going to say was it he continues to follow that pattern yeah in our lives too yeah so it's just good to be on on guard yeah in a way this is like a playbook mm-hmm. right this is the scouting report for the other team this is how they're going to try to attack our best players mm-hmm. that's right <laughs> uh, yeah. and i think 
You know, I, I don't believe Genesis 3, 1 to 7, is, the main application is we need to know God's word better right. in order to stand against the evil one because we can't. Mm. And yet I do think that's a minor application from mm. this is that a weakness that our enemy will seek to exploit is our lack of knowledge of God's word. Mm. And we strengthen our defenses as we know and memorize and meditate on God's word as we, we know the whole picture uh, you know, as we know, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, you know, all of these things it, it arm us uh, for the assaults that will come. Ultimately, though, and this is the end, this is the gospel message, mm-hmm. we hide in Christ. Mm-hmm. It's it's how you preached on the armor of God. Like they are individual things that we need to take up, but ultimately we are hidden in Christ armor. Mm-hmm. And so we are hidden here in Christ, who is the only one who can resist this twisting of the word. Mm-hmm. That's getting ahead to the third point. First, got to hit the second point, and that is that the serpent tempts. Uh, his final lie is sort of to tell Eve that God is holding something back from her. And one thing I found interesting is that the serpent doesn't sort of, at least it doesn't seem like, take the fruit and put it in Eve's mouth. Right? There is there's a physical reaching, watching, reaching, taking and eating it it seems as if the serpent sort of i mean you can just picture the slithering tongue of a serpent doing its work and then sort of backing off and then it's just eve and the fruit and adam watching i guess doing nothing at this point um eve there's sort of two different sets of three here she sees she takes and she eats that's one set of three and then within the seeing Verse 6 gives us sort of these three different appeals of sin. This physical appeal that was good for food, this emotional appeal, a delight to her eyes, and a spiritual appeal uh, that it desired to make one wise. So I think starting with that first set of three, saw, took, and eat, I think that really gives us a helpful pattern for how sin works in our lives. And I remember hearing a sermon about Sodom and Lot's wife, you know, the famous Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt, uh, that she, we think it's sort of harsh, right? They're fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, don't look back. You kind of read the story and you're like, all she did was sort of glance back and then she's judged. But I remember hearing a sermon once that said, the look itself is the same pattern of Genesis 3, 6. She looked back, she longed to go back and she went back mm-hmm. all sort of in that one turning of the head mm-hmm. um any thoughts on that pattern looking taking eating we can stop the pattern right i mean it's not mm-hmm. fait accompli right i mean right. we can look without taking mm-hmm. right <laughs> or or are we just <laughs> are we sort of without defenses i think it, is it james who describes this inward the inward nature and I'm gonna butcher the. I'll find the, it for the you. Process, but I believe it's um, desire, and then when desire uh, gives birth. You mean read it? Yes, you read it. Yeah. <laughs> but when each person is tempted. Tempted. That's first. Well, sorry, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
So maybe tempting desire mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. sin itself, mm-hmm. which I think would be the action. Mm-hmm. Not that the other things mm-hmm. aren't sin. I think yeah. that's what it was referring to, maybe. Yeah. He, and he calls it desire in the Greek is epithumeia. And it's that he is not saying that a, a desire for something bad isn't sin. That's not what he's saying there in James. He's, it's sinful desire. The desire itself is sinful, but it gives birth to actual, the act of sin. Uh, that's what he's describing. And then he says the act of sin brings forth death. So the process is like having a baby is the way he describes it. It's, it's pretty graphic, actually, as you read the Greek. But um, it's that same pattern here is... Uh, the way in which she was sinfully tempted is that she desired it and then took it. Um, so, and then it brought forth death. Mm-hmm. So am I, maybe, I'm just kind of repeating the pattern, but yeah, it seems James to keeps describing it as this is the ongoing thing. This is how it always works. It seems to me that the looking mm-hmm. is sinful mm-hmm. in Eve mm-hmm. because it is desiring something that is illicit Mm -hmm. is not for her to have it is a form of coveting right Mm -hmm. and there's there's a lot of argument in that in and of itself right because sometimes when we experience that form of temptation it is merely coming from without and as we experience it as people we might see something that we know we shouldn't have Mm. and we immediately meet it with the word or we you know we fight it by the spirit and we resist it kind of instantly Mm -hmm. right uh, and other times it sort of sits on us. Right? Kind of, there's the, the longing gaze, as uh, I think Bob Vink sort of described it. Uh, but then there's another kind that arises from within, right? The desire from within mm-hmm. uh, that may or may not have something even presented to us uh, from without at the time. So we look at Eve uh, and we see someone who is desiring what she can't have. And that is a... I think in the words of James, that's the desire that then gives birth to actual sin, actual sin, the right? The sins. taking and eating. So that's a lot of kind of parsing it out as we think about how it is lived out in our in our own lives. There's sort of, maybe we can say this, there's multiple battlefronts on which we fight sin, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of without and within, maybe we could say. Or as I remember somebody saying once about a sermon about uh, David and Bathsheba, there's an opportunity for sin and there's a desire for sin. And we praise God that sometimes we have the opportunity, but there's no desire. And sometimes we have the desire and there's no opportunity. (laughs) problem for David is he had the desire and there was the opportunity Mm -hmm. at the same time. He had the internal and the external. And so there are sort of those battlefronts where we guard what comes in front of our eyes, right? We guard the ways in which we know we are tempted externally, But we also know that it arises from within, and we need to battle those illicit desires within. We need to put those to death by the power of the Spirit, by applying the Word. I'm doing a lot of talking about temptation. Jump in on any of this. I I was going to back it up and think think something through here, which is for, for us as descendants of Adam and Eve, we were born with original sin, which means... Uh, in a sin nature that is, we're not totally corrupted, uh, fully corrupted, but every part of our being is corrupted in some way and inclined against God until we're regenerated 
uh, born again by the Holy Spirit. And then we have indwelling sin, which is just, you know, it's still in there. It's the old nature, the old man, but it's not in charge anymore. So when something comes along and tempts from without, we actually have something within us that we don't want that is inclined to do things that are wrong, right? Uh, and we have to resist that. But the problem here with Eve is that she doesn't have that. So the old term for this is concupiscence. And I don't believe that the Bible teaches that she has concupiscence. I don't think she had concupiscence. She had no original sin. She wasn't, she didn't, it wasn't that she had the spirit and it just suppressed her original sin. She didn't have it. So the question is how, how did this happen, right? Like here comes the tempter and then she wants the thing, even though she doesn't have this indwelling sin nature. So I think it's a mystery and I don't understand it. But she was capable of sinning somehow, even though she didn't have a nature that was inclined to that. Yeah, even Adam were in a state that we can't relate to, right? right? He, right. They were in the first of these fourfold states. They had the ability not to sin. Sorry, <laughs> they had the ability uh, to sin. I want to read a quote uh, from... Uh, this is, comes from the uh, report of the Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. This came from the PCA uh, Study Committee report. It hasn't been approved yet by our General Assembly, uh, but it is, has some helpful wording in it for this very discussion that we're talking about. They write a, a statement about uh, desire. Uh, quote, We affirm not only that our inclination toward sin is a result of the fall, but that our fallen desires are in themselves sinful. The desire for an illicit end, whether in sexual desire for a person of the same sex or in sexual desire disconnected from the context of biblical marriage, is itself an illicit desire. Therefore, the experience of same-sex attraction is not morally neutral. The attraction is an expression of original or indwelling sin that must be repented of and put to death. So the context of here, context here is only on uh, same-sex attraction, which is the instructions for the study committee to write their report on. Uh, but we can expand it, right? So it has a greater application uh, for our own lives in the desires uh, that we deal with, that we fight against, that we recognize are in themselves uh, illicit and sinful, and therefore worthy of fighting against and seeking to put to death. So that's just a quote uh, that I think is uh, is helpful as we kind of live in a world in which this idea of illicit desires is uh, somewhat uh, debated and taken issue with. Uh, now the appeal of sin is holding up is held up in these three appeals: the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual. Uh, interestingly, as I said in the sermon at the end of verse six, Eve just eats, and that's sort of the the culmination of everything that happens. There's no like in-depth description of her of her eating. Uh, she just eats. The final point, as we're running out of time here, that I made in the sermon is the point of triumphs. Triumphs that Satan twists and he tempts uh, and he triumphs. Uh, Adam's and Eve's eyes are open. They know they're naked and they made loincloths. What's the significance of the loincloths, do you think? 
I mean, it's like an outward expression of how they f feel inwardly, right? That, that it has to do with their relationship with God. So they're trying to cover over the shame they feel of disobedience to him. And they can't do that spiritually. So they try to, they try to cover it over. We're, we're psychosomatic. We're souls and spirit. We're souls and bodies put together and joined in an incredibly uh, complex way. So they're trying to cover their body to cover over their sin in some way. And it's, it's obviously not going to work out. It's amazing to me how quick it happens because mm. Satan or the serpent has offered so much. Mm. He's over-promised and he's under-delivered, mm -hmm. right? He comes through with nothing. They receive the exact opposite, mm -hmm. right? They, mm -hmm. they imagine there's some sort of higher plane of freedom and joy uh, and knowledge. But what ends up is is bondage mm -hmm. and shame. We're going to talk about shame uh, on Sunday. And uh, just as a teaser, the insufficiency of these loincloths mm -hmm. and the fig leaves uh, to cover them. They are still in hiding despite wearing them. They still hide from God. Uh, they still deal with shame and fear uh, and bondage. And this is, this is the right kind of shame. Mm -hmm. There's a wrong kind of shame uh, that I think Ed Welch describes as victim shame. Mm. You can be the victim of something and feel shame for it. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the idea of being disgraced. Right? Right. That's a kind of an improper form of shame. This form of shame is proper because it arises out of guilt. Mm. Uh, and I, by proper, I mean it, it comes from the right place, and there's only one way to deal with it. Mm. Fig leaves are not the way to deal with it. <laughs> We're going to see how to deal with it uh, next week. Uh, but the transition to the end of the sermon is that uh, there's, I said, there's another account that follows this same outline with a different triumph, right? In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus meets Satan full on, not in the form of a serpent, and he twists and he tempts, uh, but there it is, in fact, uh, Jesus uh, who triumphs. So I, that, was a, that was a brief point, uh, but for me it was the the best part of the sermon. Mm -hmm. As somebody said, if we if I'd ended five minutes early, it would have been a disaster of a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were getting there. <laughs> Till when, we got... when you said that point about triumph, I said, oh, that's where he's going to turn it, right there. <laughs> yeah. Can, uh, can I, I had a comment on this. Jump in. You mentioned shame. and I mean, that's kind of the goal of Satan, right? Is It, it appears as if in this in this explanation of what's going on that satan sees somehow what god is doing in this created world he's made all of this and he sees the place mankind is given and he does not want mankind to have the thing that they're given he doesn't want them to have dominion over the earth and apparently he wants it he wants the world so how is he going to stop mankind from inheriting the earth, from being fruitful and multiplying and having dominion. And um, how is he going to get all of it? Well, he's going to make man guilty. If, if God has to punish mankind because he knows God is just, what he has to do is make man guilty. And that will lead to man's death and rejection of mankind by God, a se separation of this relationship, and mankind can't inherit the earth. And that's it. Now Satan can take it. That's that's my summary of like the mm -hmm. mind of the evil mm -hmm. one, right? Like, yeah. That's his goal, and that's his goal 
in all temptation today too is to prevent us from having a proper relationship with God and inheriting the earth. And then for those who are Christians who are restored, his goal is just to make us miserable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, until then. Uh, so it's the fear of death and all that's associated with it is shame, mm-hmm. guilt. And I wanted to point out, you mentioned um, there's good shame, which is when you know you're guilty and you feel bad about it. Uh, you feel you feel ashamed of what you did. That's that's good because it's supposed to drive you to something. Those feelings exist for a reason. They drive us to the Lord who can take away our shame and our guilt. But there's like a cultural shame, which sometimes is good, but often it's really bad. And in America, it didn't really used to be much of a thing. But now it's a thing because of social media. Uh, like... You did certain things that we don't like as a culture, so we're going to shame you publicly, and and then people will respond publicly. Oh, I'm you know I feel so bad and I'm ashamed, and mm-hmm. but it really wasn't objectively wrong according to God's word. It's just what the culture says. Sometimes it is. Sometimes yeah, it's not. Yeah, I mean usually yeah. it's just it's just a cultural type of thing. Um, at least these days it, it feels like that maybe, but I just wanted to point out. Our culture is now becoming more of a kind of shame culture than it used to be, I think, because mm-hmm. of social media. And it's all related to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Yeah, I think it's part social, part social media and part what you're saying of the, the differentiation. The, the, the further the cultural norms get from God's norm. Right. Good but point. I, I think, sadly, Christians have also been guilty of using shame in the wrong way, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Shaming. Uh, you know, <laughs> the one that comes to mind is the scarlet letter, right? That that old story mm-hmm. about the adulteress wearing the A around mm-hmm. and kind of this public shaming. Mm. Uh, how does church uh, discipline over sin, how does that not become <laughs> public mm-hmm. shaming? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, the only... For the Christian, shame has one purpose, mm. and it's to drive us to confession mm. and to the Lord. Um, so that's the good shame of Adam and Eve. They should feel afraid of God. Mm. You know, and you think of people who don't have any shame right. for the things they should be ashamed of. Their conscience is your What's It's so seared. It's conscience, yeah. It's, right. It's not how it's supposed to be. Yeah, and once Satan tempts us, he puts on a different hat, which is the hat of the accuser. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he just names it. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of where. That's what his name means, right? That's where the shame can come from. And so, um, even when we have been forgiven, we still struggle with shame and guilt because of the accuser, mm. uh, who will continually bring it up before God until he is silenced. Mm. Uh, and that's the you know the the revelation conclusion that I've had to end all these sermons in Revelation, Revelation twenty, where the serpent is cast mm. down and he is. Uh, he is destroyed and silenced. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful, full picture of the the tempter being uh, silenced to never tempt again. So not only can we not sin again, we'll never even be tempted by the tempter mm. to sin again. Closing thinking, thought. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we could end on thinking about the defeat of Satan because next week we're not going to do a podcast, right? Yeah, I'll be out of town next out? week, so I might do something. <laughs> but probably not. <laughs> uh, I was so that would be 
you know, Genesis 3, it goes on to have the, the curse, which is terrible on mankind. And it's why the world is the way it is today. But there's also the curse on Satan, which is our great hope, right? And I just love, um, after this curse, Adam then, it says, Adam named his wife Eve. She's the mother of all the living. He, he had hope because of that. He had hope that things were going to continue. He wasn't just going to get obliterated. Mm-hmm. There's life still, and there's something that's going to come and crush the serpent. And then God covers over them. Are you, well, hold on a second. Are you ahead. trying to preach my sermon for Sunday ahead, ahead of time? <laughs> no, no. You're going to steal my thunder okay, okay, here. Okay, okay, we'll go for But they're covering over the shame. God, God provides a solution, right? He provides a tangible picture. And that's the defeat of the serpent. Uh, that God provides a covering. And so Satan doesn't win in the end. He doesn't get to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. He doesn't get to manipulate God and force God to judge people that God intends to have inherit the earth. Um, God provides a way. Mm-hmm. That was my end. Yeah, it's beautiful. Here. God provides a way mm-hmm. is right. Um, all right, let's close there. All right. Satan's triumph in the garden brought death. Jesus' triumph in the desert and on the cross brings life. And by believing in him, not by winning our battle with Satan, but by believing in Jesus, uh, we too have that same uh, life everlasting. All right, well, thanks for listening to Watering Seeds. We hope you found this conversation helpful as you seek to live out your faith this week. Uh, We're not going to be doing a podcast together next week. Uh, But I will be preaching on Genesis 3, verses 8 to 24. And it sounds like Pastor Chris may have his gears turning to do something next week. We'll see. You'll have to tune in on the feed to find out. I hope you have a chance to listen to the sermon uh, this Sunday, whether in person or through any of our virtual offerings. And uh, until we meet again, grace be with you all.